0: If you have your Bibles, I would ask that you open them up to the book of Colossians. We will be reading uh, verses 24 through the beginning of chapter 2, the first several verses of chapter 2 this morning. As we come and gather together, we realize that our coming together on a Sunday morning, while for many of us is sort of ritual and habit, not the sort of, Evil, bad habits or evil, bad rituals that we get into, but it is commonplace for us. This is simply what we do. We realize that for a good many others, this is incredibly odd. You are strange people. So we gather together and we sing. Yeah, you're welcome. We gather together and and we sing together, which I, I think that they would understand the the unity of, of singing. And we pray, and I think that that's fairly normal. But. We really put a lot of emphasis on this word thing. Uh, We we gather together and and we are reading and studying a letter that was well over 2,000 years old, or almost, I should say, 2,000 years old, and in some cases well older than that. And not only do we read it, we think that this letter that wasn't written by any one of us, wasn't written to any of us, somehow has an influence on our life. It has importance and it carries purpose for us as well. It's a very, very strange thing. Specifically, I mean, we are in the book of Colossians. We believe that Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, has written this who was a Jew by birth. He was a Roman citizen by birth. None of those things are like us. He isn't like us. He comes from a different time and a different place. And yet Paul seems to think, and we seem to give credence to the fact that these words matter to us, that Paul has something to say to us. I do think that this is odd for those who are outside. Why does this word contain importance for us? What I want to speak to you today from the word of God to the Colossians is how Paul's ministry is meant for you as well. Even though he has never seen you, he has never talked to you, you have not seen him face to face. And until you are met with him in heaven, you never will. Yet his ministry and everything that he did and suffered was for you. So if you would, go to the book of Colossians and let us begin reading in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions For the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God has chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have had for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. May God add his richest blessings to this reading of his word. Why Why do we care what Paul has to say? first thing we see is that Paul celebrates his sufferings. And we should and could add, he celebrates in his sufferings for you. Paul celebrates them. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. These are not just normal sufferings, but he says, my sufferings for your sake. And then he adds this very strange bit about filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, this is not a... Statement that we find anywhere else in Paul, it's very unique here. It can also be very difficult to understand what he means by what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And there have been people, although there are few throughout the history of the church, that took this to mean that Christ's death on the cross was not fully sufficient, that there was something lacking in it, and therefore Paul, in his own sufferings, is sort of putting together what, what Christ didn't quite fix, what he didn't quite fill up. And we would easily and quickly reject that, given the verses from 15 to 24, excuse me, 15 through 23, which we've read in the past couple of weeks, that Christ's, his redemption, his reconciliation is of all things. There's nothing that is left that Christ has not redeemed and reconciled to him. He has done all things and he has accomplished all things through his blood. So there's nothing left to be accomplished, but that doesn't mean that Paul isn't being truthful here, that there is something that is missing from what Christ has done. The way we probably ought to see this, and the way that most scholarship would take this, is the afflictions of Christ are really sort of a, a way of thinking of the tribulations that come with and to the people of God when the Messiah comes. This was a well-known and understood doctrine in Judaism. They, they thought that when the Messiah was to come, that there would come with him tribulations and distress and trouble for the people of God and that they would then experience that trouble as upheaval within the world. And you can understand why. The Jews understood the Messiah as being a Davidic-like figure who would come as a lion and rule over the peoples of the world. And so what that meant for them was that the Jewish kingdom would be established over all others. So the trib- tribulation Tribulation would clearly be the idea that the Jewish people would have to go out and conquer. So there would be tribulation, there would be fighting, there would be strife and distress. We know that that hasn't happened, so what do we mean when we talk about these sort of birth pains, as they're sometimes called, or the tribulation of the Messiah? In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, we read this. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for one thousand, two hundred and sixty. Days. Now, we have very quickly ventured from something that we know and understand in an epistle and what Paul is saying into the realm of the apocalyptic, which is less well understood and much more difficult. But let me clear the groundwork for a couple of things here. One, the book of Revelation is highly symbolic. Okay, It was written figuratively when, when John would have written it, when the book of Daniel would have been written. All those apocalyptic imageries would have been understood as just that. Imagery. Okay? So we need to unpack what the images are. So, who is this woman and what is the purpose of this statement that John is making? The woman is very easily identified as Mary. After all, it is clearly the mother of Christ. So, we immediately think of Mary. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains. But this seems especially for the early church way way too high to be speaking of Mary you'll realize that Mary is not made much of in the new testament she's mentioned briefly in the gospels but briefly in the gospels she's mentioned nowhere in paul and this would be the only appearance outside of those gospels in which Mary appears it is very unlikely that this is just mary although it certainly includes mary remember When the Jewish people thought of taking on birth pains, it wasn't just a specific person who took those on, but the nation as a whole would take those on. The birth pains that are being imaged here are not just one woman, but it is a picture of all of the people of God awaiting for their deliverance from their oppressors who surround them. They are waiting for them. And then when the the son is given, when their freedom is given in in the person of Jesus Christ who in a second is caught up to heaven, they have their freedom, they have their deliverance. That was the birth pains. And yet Paul seems to imply that this is still going on. He says, I am completing what was lacking in the Messiah's afflictions. So if the Messiah's afflictions were just the coming of Christ, just the beginning of the birth pains, why is Paul then filling them up? Why is he completing what was lacking in them? The woman who runs to the wilderness is not safe there unless God intervenes. We continue to read in Revelation 12. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was Defeated, And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now, The salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Satan, as Christ ascends into heaven, is battled by the angels and he is cast down. And they say, Blessed are you, O heavens, for Satan is no longer in you, but woe to the earth. Remember in the temptation of Christ and even in in the way in which we've set forward the fall, the fall is the upturning of all of the order of God so that no longer was it God, Adam, Eve, and then the serpent below, but everything was overturned. And the serpent then ruled over the earth, this ancient serpent who is no longer a snake, but a dragon who sought to devour the child when he was born. That has been overturned. Jesus, then, we have said, has returned the wheel. He has made a new creation so that the order is now re established. We know very well that that old order is still there. Jesus, after fasting in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, faced Satan in temptation. And one of those temptations was if you would come to me, I I would give you. Everything that you can see, every nation in the world can belong to you if you would bow to me. That was not sort of a weak temptation. That wasn't something that Satan couldn't give to him. Those were his by the very sin of the first Adam. That overturning gave Satan the power over all of the nations. And he is offering them to Jesus so that Jesus can escape the cross. Because he knows that that is what Jesus has been sent for. That is the promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him. Jesus, however, refuses the easy way out and instead takes the cross. And in that, he inverts the world, but Satan still fights. And because Satan still fights and because Satan's still wrathful against the church, Paul then has to take that gospel message and spread it. Because When we think of creation, we think of the Big Bang. That's just how we're made. And we think that that Big Bang, that creation, spreads out simply by its own power and exertion of force. But that's not how the new creation works. Under God's providence, under God's care, the new creation goes forward with what? Proclamation of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, we talked about this before, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. For everyone in Romans 10.13-15 who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But listen to the questions. How does that new creation happen? How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never believed? heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Christ has made a new creation and he has reestablished an order, but for that order to matter to you, for that order to matter to the Colossians, for that order to matter to the Romans, for that order to matter to the wide world, the only way that new creation is in place is by someone going to them and preaching. And that means going out into the old world where Satan rules and reigns. Christ redid everything, but you have to believe to be part of that new creation. And in order for you to believe, people have to be sent. And in order for people to be sent, they've got to be sent out to Satan. And Paul says, I am taking my own self, the brunt of that, so that the gospel message might come to you. Paul says in First Thessalonians, since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored all the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. He was ripped away from the Thessalonians and his heart's desire, he, he says it emphatically, all the more eagerly and with great desire, we wanted to come back to see you face to face. Paul, the apostle of God, who was sent to preach the, the whole gospel of God to people, Christ has set him aside to win the nations for him. He says, I wanted to come back to you. This man who speaks with the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. I wanted to come back to you. Paul should be able to do whatever he wants to. And then he writes in verse 18, Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. Listen, don't underestimate the power of Satan in this world. If Paul couldn't even physically return to Thessalonica simply because of the work of Satan, because Satan filled up afflictions and trouble and sufferings for Paul wherever he went, don't think that you will escape either. Again, there is always bad news before there is good news. Paul In order to preach the gospel, for the gospel to spread, for the good news of the new kingdom to spread, the old kingdom has to be infiltrated. And that means suffering for us. But Paul says, I rejoice in that. Those sufferings are something he is willing to put up with gladly and joyfully, because he makes to make known the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ to people who otherwise would never have seen him before. And not only is it a passive suffering on Paul's part, Paul is not just saying, My sufferings are those which are pressed upon me by Satan and by outside. Notice what he says in verse 29: For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is quick to give grace and credit to God. He says, God is the one who is working with me, but make no doubt about it, Paul struggles and toils. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have had for you and those at Laodicea and all those who have not seen me face to face. That is true for the Laodiceans. It is true for the Colossians and Crossway. It is true for you as well. You have not seen Paul, but he has worked for you. He has toiled for you. He has taken the brunt of Satan for you so that you too might hear the word of God. Paul ought to be important for you. Number two, Paul communicates God's mystery. What is it that Paul was sent to do Notice the way in which he puts this is not just and seems odd. He could have just said, I was sent to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But he doesn't put it that way. Instead, he puts it in this very odd way. I became a minister according to the stewardship of God that was given to me for you. The purpose of that was to make the word of God fully known. What is that word of God? The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In what way was this a mystery before? What Paul means by that is not that it was hidden in the Old Testament. It was there. It was sort of buried the whole time. And what you really needed to see was you just needed to have, if we go back to 2 Corinthians 3, sort of the veil of Moses lifted off your face so that you could accurately read the Old Testament. So if you, if you were able to do that, you could accurately read the Old Testament, then bam, mystery solved, and you would get it. Now, what Paul means by mystery is this wasn't even revealed then. It was hidden. It wasn't ever known. This is what he's getting at. He doesn't fill it out here. But you can see how it would become to this. Paul is is an apostle to the Gentiles. The promise, the one promise, the promise that stands over everything else was the promise that was made from God to Abraham. At this time, only Abram. In Genesis 12, 1 and 3, this is the first time that God has promised these things to Abram, although it is not the last time. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Paul calls that, believe it or not, the gospel in Galatians. He says, "This is scripture preaching the gospel. The gospel is this, that God looked at Abraham and he said, I will bless you. I will pour out my blessings on you. You hear that word bless come time and time again in here. And then that final statement, and on, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, that that gospel is that God will no longer curse the entire world. Remember, this is just coming off of the flood. No longer will I curse the entire world, but Abram, through you, I'm going to bless all of the families of the world. Well, what happens after that? Abram becomes Abraham and gives father to Isaac, who gives, who fathers, doesn't give birth. We'll talk about that later. Who fathers Jacob and Esau. Jacob then becomes an entire nation of people. His name is changed to Israel, which is where we get Israel from. And all of his descendants are included. Not all of Abraham's descendants are included. Not all of Isaac's descendants are included, but all of Jacob's descendants are included. And to those descendants, God rescues from Egypt and gives the law. And so if you are Jewish and you read the promise to Abraham here, and you say it is in Abraham, by being in Abraham, that all of the nations are going to be blessed. How is that possible? Well, they have to be part of the Jewish nation. What does it mean to be part of the Jewish nation? It means you take on Jewish heritage, heritage, you take on Jewish identity, you take on the law. You have to take on the law. If you want to be part of Abraham, you have to take on the law. The mystery that was not revealed that is now revealed is that no longer do the Gentiles have to take on the law. The Gentiles are freed from the law. They get the blessings of Abraham in Christ. That is why he says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you. You to get the Messiah, don't need to be in Abraham's line, but by faith, you get the Messiah. You get deliverance from sin. You get deliverance from evil outside of the law, which was weak and worthless to provide that salvation in the first place. You are justified freely outside of the law, which is there to condemn and to only condemn. And so Paul says, this is a great mystery, which was not revealed, but man, the glory and the weight of that, that you now reserve and get redemption outside of anything that you do on your own. You do not have to be Jewish. He goes on to say, in the book of Galatians, there is no Jew nor Greek, nor male nor female. All freely through the grace that is in Jesus Christ can receive adoptions as sons and daughters. That is the great mystery of God that was not known in the Old Testament, but Christ has revealed, and it is specifically revealed to Paul. Now, let's do a little thought experiment. Outside of Paul, you take Paul's writings out of the New Testament. Where do you get that from? It's very, very difficult to see. Matthew, frankly, sounds really Jewish. Go back and read the book of Matthew, it is incredibly Jewish, and it sounds like you almost need to keep the law. It is Paul, it is Paul, and the ministry of Paul in revealing that mystery to the world that it is in Christ that you can receive all the fullest blessings of Abraham without going through the law. That is the mystery that has been revealed. Paul communicates the mystery of God. And third, Paul completes God's people. Paul completes God's people. He says, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That maturity is in full growth. It is the same idea of being completed and perfect before him. It is the same idea that Paul has written earlier about being reconciled in the flesh of his death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Those same ideas that are found there, being holy and blameless and above reproach are what Paul means by presenting you as mature before God. He says, I have labored and I have toiled for this. He says specifically then in verse 2, or excuse me, chapter 2 in verse 2, he has toiled and labored for two things. One, that they might be encouraged and unified in heart. That they they wouldn't be faint-hearted. That they would be able to face what's coming to them with stoutness and with steadfastness. That they would be knit together. Not only that they themselves would be edified and and built up, but more than that, that they would be built up together, unified before the world. Secondly, and more importantly, that you would completely understand the fullness of Christ's sufficiency. That you would completely understand the fullness of Christ's sufficiency. He says this in full assurance, that is complete A better way to to say that would be complete understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. What would that complete understanding and knowledge be? What is it about Christ that he says, for you to grow up into complete understanding, it is this in verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom, the ability to do and to live rightly knowledge, what you ought to think and how you ought to think about the world and about Satan and about God and about spiritual things, about doctrine, about how God works. That is knowledge and wisdom is how you live that out. He says, in Christ, you have everything. He says, all, all The treasures of wisdom and knowledge, every bit of wisdom and knowledge that you could ever want are found in Christ. He says, in him, it is him that we proclaim. Listen, Christian, the gospel and Jesus Christ are not the entryways into the faith. We we don't simply preach the gospel to get people saved. You want to see people die on the vine, be an evangelist and let those people die. Because you will preach the gospel to them. They will raise their hands and say, yeah, yeah, I totally dig that, I believe. And you leave them alone and they will never grow and they will wither and they will die. You get no sense of that. Not in the New Testament and certainly not in Paul. Paul's driving mission was not to see people converted, but to see people converted fully and completely that they no longer resemble the old man, but that they completely and totally resemble Christ in the new creation. That is his goal. You don't need anything else. Notice what he ends up saying later on in verse four. Why do you tell us this, Paul? I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. It will sound at times like there are other things that you need in life. It will sound at times as though there's other things that you need to be given in order to be made complete. How are you going to deal with suffering? How are you going to find joy? How are you going to find purpose in your life? And we can say, Christ has saved me. But if we don't pack anything else into that statement, it solely becomes something that will happen in the future. way a lot of gospel presentations go, it is simply to save you from God's wrath then. And the gospel means very little to you now. And what people then do is they still have to search for how to make sense of their lives now. And Paul says, there is no making sense of your life now. You have it all. It is Christ. It is not just a future salvation. Christ saves you here and now. You don't have to wait for something else. And that more importantly means you don't have to supply anything else. Christ is all sufficient for everything that you need. To make sense of your suffering. You suffer in life. I know you do. You suffer from physical problems, from emotional problems, all of that suffering. What are you going to do? How are you going to make sense of that? If God only cares about your final salvation, why not, Scotty, beam me up now? These are real questions for people. Why am I unfulfilled and unjoyful here? If God loved me so much that he sent his only son, that whosoever believeth in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If, if God loved me in that manner, why then do I still not have joy here? The question, you, you can see that there's a huge vacuum there. And what do people do? They've got to shove stuff in there. They've got to, to give their lives meaning, to give their lives purpose to give their suffering meaning and purpose. And Paul says, why? You have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all there for you. See, the most helpful thing about Paul here is that Paul is not just telling you that these things should be this way. He's not just saying, listen, it's my goal to go around the countryside, preaching in the highways and the byways to get people saved and then hopefully they're mature in Christ and then go on a merry way. Paul isn't just telling you how to deal with suffering and how to deal with joy and how to deal with purpose. He's modeling it for you. Why is Paul important? Paul suffered. But he suffered for the sake of the gospel. His suffering becomes a model for how to rejoice in the gospel even in the midst of his suffering. He knew that his suffering in this world was part and parcel because he was taking the gospel out. That is not just oppression from that's not just oppression from Satan. Listen, Paul suffered physically in his own body. Not just because people beat him and whipped him. Paul seems to suffer from some sort of eye problem in the book of Galatians you've ever talked to somebody who suffers from not being able to see before bifocals and trifocals and quad focals, before glasses of any kind, Paul was going blind. Not only does he say that the Galatians would have ripped their eyes out for him, which would be an odd thing if he suffered from knee problems, but more than that, at the end he says, look what, well, with what large letters I write. Paul had to write large. Think of one of those huge like third grade pencils that look like crayons, right? Paul had to write very large because his eyes were probably very bad. He suffered in that way, but he suffers for the gospel of Christ. And not only that, he can clearly write that he is happy and he rejoices. Not only did we begin with that statement, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. But he ends with that as well. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order. Paul is able to rejoice in the midst of his sufferings precisely because he knows the purpose of those sufferings, which is to make the glory and the purpose of God known to the Gentiles. And I know that many of you don't think that your sufferings support the gospel in the way that Paul's do, but I'm telling you, your hope in the midst of suffering does that. It does that. It supports the gospel. It proclaims the gospel. It is not a full proclamation of the gospel, but make no doubt about it. You're suffering in the midst of trial, filled with hope and rejoicing that Christ will do what he has said he will do and he will make you whole again. That rejoicing proclaims the truth of the gospel. You in your very life, by being one who is steadfast in the faith of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of horrible persecution or trials or physical ailments, proclaim the gospel of God that you will not give in to the weak and feckless way of the world. That you will not, as Job's wife told him, curse God and die. But you will hold fast to the gospel. Rejoice in that. Because I'm telling you, when you do that, others see your faith just as they saw Paul's. They see that you are steadfast in your sufferings and they are encouraged. They see your love in the middle of that and they are encouraged to walk all the more with Christ, to become more like Him themselves. Don't waste your suffering, don't waste your joy. God has a purpose for your life, and that is the spread of the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ to all who would believe. Let us pray. Father God, you have indeed given us at times a large amount of difficulty. We will face trials and tribulations in this world. We will face difficulties both from without and within. We will at times lack faith. We will at times doubt. There will be times in which our spirits will not uphold us. There will be times in which our bodies will fail us. Friends will desert us. Loved ones will be few, far, and in between. There will be times When our bodies will fail us. When all will be taken from us, even our dignity and death. But Father, you have used all these things in Paul to demonstrate the glory of Jesus Christ above all things. To show his goodness, his mercy, and his truth above all things. May... Father, you do that also in us. May we be like Paul, as Paul continually asks for his believers to continually ask for those churches who know of him to be like him. Father, may we be like him, be remade in the image of Christ so that even all of our sufferings and our pains and our toils, all of it might be done for your glory so that some may come to know, so that many may come to know you. And Father, even for us, that we might rejoice in our sufferings for your sake, for the sake of your name. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.